Last slide, we can give a very brief uh, uh, heartfelt introduction to our, our speaker for the weekend, the Reverend Dr. Professor Rod Rosenblatt. Uh, he's at Concordia University in Irvine, California. Uh, he got a PhD at the University of Strasbourg in France. How long ago? A number of years ago. He has a seat in two worlds in academia, one in philosophy and another in theology, and specifically uh, the formation of the doctrine, or what the old word is called dogma. Uh, Martin Luther, a hero of many years, had an incarnation in the 21st century. They look something surprisingly similar to Rod Rosenblatt. Personally, so eager to bring him back to Birmingham in the year last in 2003. Uh, and gave some, some stirring uh, talks and insights uh, that several of us remember specifically regarding fathers. Uh, he's a man with just a wealth of, of insights, particularly into the gospel. Uh, as Frank Linehouse described him in an email with Peter Lewis God, he's one of those non-flaking theologians <laughs> alive on this planet today. And I really am just very, very, very grateful to hear with you Thanks, for the weekend. Thank Appreciate you. It. All right, I begin with some disclaimers. Um, I am not going to be doing things with you that are original. I'm going to be doing some things that uh, were done by someone else, but I think during Lent, some of the best that I can uh, present to you. I've done outlines of a book by Leon Morris, this is what Lutherans would call an epitome, uh, or you might say the Reader's Digest version. It's called The Atonement. Morris is Church of England, Australian, uh, Coke bottle glasses, used to wear a kangaroo pin on his lapel uh, when he was at Trinity in Deerfield. Um, someone told me a bit of an autodidact, uh, self-educated, a brilliant man, Reformed Anglican uh, in the lineage of someone like Jeffrey Broadley or uh, others. Uh, who's the fellow at, uh, at Westminster, uh, Philly? <coughs> Reformed Anglican for years. Philip Edgecombe Hughes. That sort of lineage. It is, as I said, an epitome the original and larger work was called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, which won Christian Book of the Year when it was published. Uh, I'll pass those around so you can take a look at them. As I say, this is going to be uh, what for many of you probably will be review. I hope I don't bore you out of your ever-loving wits. C.S. Lewis said it's a terrible sin to bore people. Um, but some of it will be material that will be familiar to you already. I just might be able to provide a little more detail on it, or Morris will. The outlines I've done are pretty extensive. Uh, that is a group of about six of them at 18 pages when they print out. Those I will make available uh, through Gill to you or somehow on your web, but then they'll go to my son's website but where you can have access to the whole thing and print it out if you want to. I'm going to just hit highlights because you'll have access to all the detail work if you want it. Fair enough? Um, 
it being Lent, when uh, the Advent first called me, I thought, now what can I do in Lent when I can't vest and get into your pulpit, which I can't. Uh, that's a whole other story. But uh, since I can't do that, what could I do that, that is to do with Lent? And I thought, I think the best thing that I can do in the limited time that we've got is to do a high-content thing on how Christianity works. That is, what are the words that describe what happened at the cross? So don't bail out on me. This is going to be highly sort of intense word studies on how Christianity works. Um, If I do this with any degree of success, then at least you've got a source who is known throughout the world for this field and that you're at the heart of the heart of the heart of the whole matter. What went on at the cross? How does the New Testament describe that? Give us the details. I think the non-Christian has every right to ask that. And in many cases, the voice of the church hasn't exactly been a clear trumpet call. Uh, it's been less less than that. And we've got a generation now who, in visiting evangelical churches, doesn't even have what used to be the case when I was with InterVarsity back in the 60s and serving at state university campuses all over Southern California, where there was a coherence to evangelicalism, which no longer is the case. Uh, You know that from television, not just the worst examples, but ones that are even better than the worst. And if anything characterizes what's going on in evangelicalism today, it would be happy and not content. So we've got quite a bit of work to do, those of us in the historic strain, to do here. When I was called to Westmont College uh, in Santa Barbara, California, um, as a Lutheran, which was amazing, uh, we had our interviews, and um, the Baptist of Baptists, Robert Gundry, at the close of the conversation, said with all of the department there, Rod, what would you see yourself doing if you came to the faculty at Westmont College? And I said, I would try to be reintroducing the gospel in evangelicalism. Now that's almost a gauntlet. But I thought I had a pretty good case that the thing was in free fall. Those of you who want to read the tragic story of this, I just did it with all the Missouri Synod Lutheran pastors in Oregon at Cannon Beach. And I used Ian Murray's book, Better of Truth Trust, Ian Murray, Evangelicalism Divided. And it's the story, <clears throat> starting sort of with the tremendously successful first Grand Crusade in London, to what happened after that, when the evangelical party of the Church of England, which includes my heroes, John Stott on the more Wesleyan side of Church of England, and J.I. Packer, on the more reformed side of the Church of England, 
made, said Murray, some decisions that were almost apocalyptic in their um, ramifications. Not good ones. Um, it's the story of that. Ian Murray, Evangelicalism Divided, Banner of Truth Trust, and he writes it with tears. He's not writing as some smart-ass critic. He's writing as somebody who says, this story needs to be told. And if nobody else is going to tell it, I'm going to tell it. So it's sort of a paradigm case uh, in the Church of England of what happened. And in the States, of course, we don't even have the sophistication or anywhere near it that they had. So, given that that's the situation, I'm going to be dealing with words like redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, uh, um, maybe justification if there's time at the end. Uh, these are the chapter headings in that book that I've passed around. We're going to do some detail work in that. From my tradition, one of the ones that's sort of one of the first 16th century introductions to this is by David Catreus, uh, one of the Orthodox Lutheran fathers, when he wrote Unsacrifice. <clears throat> I'll leave that here for if you want to take a look at it too. That's still in print, though not by Concordia. It's by another publisher now. But it is still in print. If you Googled it, you could find it. Very simple. Amazingly simple stuff. But the situation was such that they needed some simple books too, uh, not just uh, the stuff done by the, the uh, Melanchthons of this world, but things that could actually be used in a parish so that they could teach uh, what is sacrifice and what does it mean that Christ was the sacrifice and so forth and so forth. So that's what we're going to be doing, Lord willing, can I get that water, David? And if you'll track with me, we'll see what we can do. Now, let me do also a quick preface, because I'm going to be dealing with the text of the Bible as if it's God's Word. And in our century, that always asks for some sort of what makes you think so. Okay, so this is extra, you don't have to pay extra for this, but I'm going to do a quick outline on an argument, this room is filled with lawyers, uh, a quick argument for a high view of the text of Scripture, empirically based and not what the Reformed call a coherence argument. That is, so if, you, if you've had a little philosophy, a coherence argument is a proposition is true if and only if it doesn't contradict other propositions in the system. Reform tend to that. Lutherans tend to what philosophers call a correspondence view of truth. A proposition is true if it matches the external facts. Okay? All right, so a very quick defense of what we're about to do um, the rest of this evening and tomorrow and if you want to ask me details on this, I'll give you where you can find it in great detail. My mentor has done this in a whole bunch of different places. Uh, one of his degrees is in law. Let's do it very quickly. First, the first point is the toughie. 
four Gospels. I think this is written out, Gil. The four Gospels, when tested by the ordinary criteria applied to any writing of antiquity, ordinary criteria of any writing of antiquity, give evidence both within and without and without that they are primary source material for the life of Jesus. Okay? The four Gospels, when tested according to the ordinary criteria of, of writings of any book of antiquity, give evidence both within and without that they are primary source uh, material for the life of Jesus. The kind of thing that historians just die to get their hands on. Primary source stuff. This is the toughie. But it is approvable, one, as long as you don't bring in lousy scholarship. Lousy scholarship means, in my day, Boltmann, the redaction critics, the higher critical techniques, which, according to the canons of science, suck. Um, Probably the classic book on it was F.F. Bruce, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? F.F. Bruce, paperback, InterVarsity. The New Testament documents, are they reliable? That one book would have so much effect on the young evangelicals because they're never hearing anything about it. They haven't got to reject an argument. They've never heard an argument. Everything is so experiential that this comes like from another planet. This one is a strictly historical uh, question, yay or nay. If you can show that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by French drunken monks in the 8th century, this argument collapses. But it wasn't. Okay? Now the rest is just a greased slide. Two. The central character can't claim to be nothing less than God in human flesh. That's what got him killed. Huh? This is just a matter of texts. Good young Jewish boys don't run around saying things like, He that has seen me has seen the Father. Good little Jewish boys don't go run around saying, before Abraham was, I am. Good little Jewish boys uh, don't say things like, um, oh, Moses wrote of me. I'm the subject of the whole Old Testament. And so forth. 
I'm amazed that the Jesus seminar, some guy will stand up and say, well, I don't think there's any chance that Jesus ever claimed to be God. And all, all I can imagine is that they put their biblical CD into the tray, did a search, I space, A-M space, G-O-D, period, return. It returns zero, and they say, see? Which just proves that they don't know how to read. Huh? There's a reason that his Jewish compadres were furious. There's a reason Caiaphas said what he said that night in the middle of the night in that kangaroo court. You see, he deserves to die. There's a reason that Jesus of liberal Protestantism would have been given the keys to the city, not nailed to a cross. Huh? It is all over the place. You just have to know how to read. There is no doubt that Jesus, in manifold ways, talked as if he was God in human flesh. One Reformed writer wrote a whole book just using Jesus' claim of my father, my father and I, my father and I. Only one time did he say our father, when? They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Other than that, it was a relationship that was privy. My father and I. The Jews caught on to that. They knew what that meant. They weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. They knew that if he was the Son of God, they knew that if he was the Son of God, it was equality with God. Huh? Now, anybody can go around making assertions. There are people who say this. Many of them are in mental wards on, on drugs and think they are God. Anybody can make assertions. He pointed to, when they asked him for a sign for doing this, he pointed to his forthcoming resurrection from the dead. What sign do you give for doing these things? Destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. They said, now we know you're crazy. Huh? Took us 47 years, all of us, to build this temple. Uh, and you're going to rebuild it, you're nuts. But, says John, he spoke of the temple of his body. Give us a sign for doing these things. No sign will be given to this wicked generation but the sign of Jonah. For just as he was in the belly of the Leviathan for three days, even so, Kaphos, even so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days. Now, finally, the Jewish leaders caught on to this, and they went to the Romans and they said, if you've got any brains at all, and you want the Pax Romana down here in the sand, if you've got any brains at all, put a guard by that tomb, because they're going to steal the body and go running around and saying that he's risen from the dead. Okay? The evidence for this terms of early manuscripts is better than the evidence for almost any event of antiquity. There have been guys who have, been, who have set out to destroy the fact that Jesus' resurrection from the dead and they have ended up on their knees. Um, and there's a reason that they have ended up on their knees because the facts drove them to it. So at this point, at least the guy should be on his knees calling him Lord. Or to use the Thomas account, 
he fell before him and said, Of Jesus, my Lord and my God. That is a perfectly sane reaction given the evidence. Then, if our question is, Has God spoken? We get an answer from the incarnate God, but he has. Jesus' view of the Old Testament is absolutely clear that liberals hate it. Jesus, and I always mean Protestant liberals, not Clinton. I mean, <laughs> Jesus' view of the Old Testament is patently clear. He does it over and over and over again in conflict. When there's a conflict, what would he, what would he say? Have you not read the scriptures? Well spoke the Holy Spirit through our father David when he wrote of you. Uh, Jesus believed in the verbal inspiration of the Old Testament. Now, what does the Protestant liberal do with that? Well, he just modifies his view of Jesus and says, well, if he just studied like me with Professor Dr. Glotzpunkt at Heidelberg, he would have had a more sophisticated view of the Old Testament. And he doesn't think that's a problem either at all. Jesus' view of the Old Testament is patently clear. He held it in the highest regard. He didn't divide between its, quote, theology and history, chronology, or anything else. He made no such division. He argued from it as if it were absolutely true, top to bottom. And fifth, you say, well, what about the New Testament? He'd already ascended. That's got to be a no. The answer is, no, it isn't. In that unique discourse in John chapters 14 through 16, you have all of this conversation about the one he's going to send. I'm going to send another like me. There are two Greek words for another. He picks the one that's another like me. I'm going to send him. It's necessary that I go away. You know where I'm going and you know the way. And God bless Philip. He raises his hand and says, well, why can't we go with you and we don't know the way and we don't know where you're going and we don't know what you're talking about. That's Rosenblatt translating Greek. <laughs> but it's like that. That's Philip, bless him. And in that discourse, Jesus says to that group, when he comes, he will testify concerning me. And when he comes, he will lead and guide you into all truth. That's not a universal promise. If your pastor gets in, or your priest gets in the pulpit and says that applies to you, your priest may mean well, but it's wrong. You don't universalize promises. You look for whosoever, forever, all, but you don't universalize unless you have a linguistic justification for universalizing them. This was to them. They had no idea what it was. I, I wouldn't have. He will bring to your remembrance everything whatsoever I've said unto you. Now, why is it bizarre if my pastor applies that to us as a congregation? Because I can't remember what Jesus said and did because I was born 2,000 years too late. The natural understanding of that is he will bring to your remembrance every word that I've said and you're going to wonder about that, but don't worry about it because you're going to get a supernatural gift of total recall to remember everything that I said. That's why the first test of canonicity had to do with apostolicity. Can we trace this book 
to the apostolic sources or no? There were other tests, but that was number one. This is why. You say, hey, wait a minute. What about Paul? He wasn't one of the original twelve. Well, I smile when I read the New Testament because the well-meaning disciples said, Judas is gone, let's pray to the Lord, throw dice, and see who's to take his place. And the lot fell on Matthias, who was never heard from again. God had another man in mind. His name was Paul. So Paul comes, comes along, the killer of Christians, claims to have seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, temperature 120 in the shade, comes along and says, not only am I now a Christian, I'm an apostle. And I would have said just what you would have said. Are you kidding me? How in the world do we connect Paul to the disciples? We don't have to do it. He does it for us. In Galatians, he says, And before I went out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he took three years, we don't know what that was in Arabia, probably rereading his his Old Testament in terms of Jesus being the Messiah, but we don't know. Um, He says in, in Galatians, And I went down to Jerusalem to be examined by James and Peter and so forth. Result of that meeting... He says, they added unto me nothing. That's the first thing he says. They added unto me nothing. That is, you've got the general idea, but we'll fill in the details for you. They added unto me nothing. And they extended to me the right hand of fellowship. They said, good grief, he's got it all directly. Now, there's an argument for a high view of Scripture and its inspiration that is not conceptual. To break this argument, you have to break his resurrection from the dead. There's an odd little verse in John, almost a parenthesis from the writer. John 2.22. It's easy to remember because all the digits are the same. When, therefore, he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures. What was that to them? The Old Testament. Did they not believe them before? Of course they believed them before. Now they really believe them. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. There's a connection between his resurrection and a high view of the text. Now, I was a science major. When other people were were learning the history of Europe, I was dissecting cats or trying to figure out what my unknown was in organic chemistry. Um, So I was new to all this. But it was an argument that was in principle in my field. Why? Because any time you're in the field of history, it has common territory with natural science. That is, it's in principle available to the scientist. It just isn't repeatable. Okay? You're in the world of objective and evidential. And that's a scientist's world. He says, okay, I'm tracking. I'm tracking with you. 
This is the sort of thing where you say to somebody, I think you can solve the religious question on objective grounds. And they're thinking, I bet he's going to lay the ontological argument on me. Answer, no. You do it from Christ and from a messianic prophecy fulfilled, miracle, and particularly his resurrection from the dead, when I first met my mentor, uh, Dr. Montgomery, he said, bring all your science training in with you. I'd never had a theological professor say that. Bring all your science training in with you. Because he was going to argue this. Okay? Now that's as a preface. And, and I'll, if you're curious, I'll give you other places where you can find it done in detail. One is even a in a book to lawyers, um, it was his uh, dissertation on human rights in England up against Marxism, and he has a chapter entitled um, The uh, Christian Answer or something, or The Revelatory Answer. He does this argument wherever anybody will give him 15 minutes to do it. And there you'll find all the footnotes and all the references and so forth that you're interested in going after. Okay? All right. Probably I should stop for a few seconds. We can do this in detail. I just wanted as a preface because I'm about to deal with, and everything that we're doing, I'm about to deal with the Bible in a way that it's true. And in our century, that's a gigantic move. In the 16th century, if you had said something that implied that in some way you thought the Bible was wrong, I don't care if you were Anabaptist, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, or Reformed, people would have the same sort of reaction. A look of horror would come over their faces. How did the devil bring that into your mind? Now contrast our century. You quote scripture on any subject, and people wonder if maybe you need Thorazine. <laughs> I mean, they think you're, you know, maybe unglued. A friend of mine who went to law school after University of Washington, we met years later, and he finally, he blurted it out. We were best friends in high school. He was 6'5", I was 5'6", and we were kind of like Mutt and Jeff, and best of friends. Uh, but just as an aside, he never dated much, and then I got a wedding invitation that Mr. and Mrs. William F. Boeing request the honor of your presence at the wedding of Jeannie to Mr. William F. Rademacher. Anyway, he was going to law school. Finally, he boarded it out over lunch. He said, Rod, you had a full ride to Stanford. I know your SAT scores. I know all of that stuff. What's with this religious shit? <laughs> Bless him. In other words, you got, there's a baby loose in the can somewhere. You know, I thought I knew this guy, but somewhere you shake it and there's a baby loose somewhere because nobody talks like that today. Not really. And we had a pleasant conversation, but I just thanked him sort of for saying it and laying it right out on the table. What's with that stuff? I, I know your scores. Hmm? 
you'll have the same sort of conversation if you quote scripture in any kind of broader context other than other church people because we're where we are. So I offer that to you as a precursor to taking a look at the stuff. Okay, I said I'd stop for a second for questions. Yeah, um, the four Gospels tested according to the ordinary criteria applied to any document of antiquity give evidence both within and without that they are primary source historical evidence for the life and words of Jesus. Good history. Not God's word. Good history. Secondly, that the major or central figure in the Gospels claims to be nothing less than God. Third, when challenged as to verification for that, he pointed to his resurrection from the dead. He linked those. Then fourth, if you're looking for um, whether God has ever spoken, he answers it. He has a high view of the Old Testament. And fifth, he promises, even after he's gone, he's going to send somebody who's going to bring to these people's remembrance everything he said so they won't miss. The whole thing turns on whether he was raised. Scientists go, okay, that may be false, but it's in the realm of testability anyway. It's in principle breakable. Huh? Or to use the philosophy of science term, it's falsifiable. And it is. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us how you can destroy Christianity. Huh? How can you destroy Christianity? Prove that he's, the dust is still there and it's over. I don't care how beautiful you think the Beatitudes are. Or what sort of uplift I get when I read such and such. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Paul lays it out. First Corinthians 15 is a, is a long argument. That's what it is. It's an argument. If Christ be not raised, we are of all men most to be pitied. Hmm? So First Corinthians 15 is the classic chapter on this. Now what I'm doing here is apologetics or the defense, the intellectual defense of the historic Christian faith to the one who doesn't believe it. And it's part of what we're all called to, not just clergy. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter writes, But always be prepared to give an apologia, a reasoned defense to anybody who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet, do it with gentleness. I'm a little short on the gentleness item. But that's an imperative. Why are you a Christian? Francis Schaeffer said, answer because it's true, and then see where it goes. When he was an unknown, I was a youth pastor, and a friend of mine said, go hear this guy. Nobody knew really who he was, and he was meeting with youth directors from all over the United States in San Diego. That was a close drive. So I went down to hear him, not knowing who he was or anything about him. If I remember anything from that meeting, the one theme that repeated itself was to these youth leaders, 
I beg of you, when you present the gospel, don't present it as helpful. Present it as true. It was prophetic. Just prophetic. He was right. Um, so, yeah. This, this also is an answer to the inner demon in the middle of the night that whispers to you, you've been had. The whole thing is false. The whole thing is a pipe dream. Jesus rested the whole thing on his resurrection three days after he was dead. And Paul says, and we should. And it's overthrowable. If you can show that Christ wasn't risen, it's over. It's over. Huh? That isn't a shift of denominations. That's out. Or if you're inclined as I am, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Huh? I'd at least, if I were a materialist, I'd at least be a drunk one. <laughs> you know? All right. All right, with that as a kind of a preface, let's, let's tackle one of the words tonight and we'll call it a, an evening. Let's talk about the word redeem or redemption. Okay? Most of you know already <clears throat> probably that freedom is a theme which runs throughout the New Testament. It meant a lot to the early Christians. The gospel message brought them liberation. A lot of them knew what slavery was like. Some were slaves. And still they insisted that in some sense Christ made them free. In today's culture, we're constantly reminded there are limitations on our freedom. Um, the theme is often presented in conventional Christianity as sort of a rigidly defined way of life, taboos, hard, fast patterns, and so forth. The word redemption is one of the ways that the Christians spoke of freedom. Um, we have almost no use of this in our modern language, except maybe redeeming a bond or something, but it's almost limited to a religious context. In the first century, it was originally a secular word used by the common people. We tend to use the word in a more general sense, to mean deliverance. In antiquity, the word was used much more specifically. It meant deliverance in a particular kind of way. And we're going to look at that. First of all, the Greek background. In the all-pervasive Greek culture, the term had its origins in the practices of warfare. The conquered were taken as slaves. Later, some of the captured were discovered to be men of rank back home. Men of rank are not much use as slaves usually, but they're still of value to the captured country. Then the victors let it be known back in the land of the vanquished that they were ready to release such and such captives, always, of course, on receipt of a consideration. You lawyers? The receipt of a consideration? 
Money. Money. Lutron is cash. The home folk would buy back their captured brothers. They would redeem them. They would have been redeemed or ransomed. The meaning of this, people whose rightful place in their homeland fell as a result of war into the power of a strong enemy and they could not break free. If nothing was done, they would remain in, ca in captivity for the rest of their lives. If they were to be set free, money would have to be paid, the ransom. They would have to be bought out of their captivity. This buying of prisoners of wars out of their captivity was the basic idea in redemption. The word came to be used of other forms of freeing people, setting slaves free. The master would set a slave free, or a well-wisher would buy him and let him go free. The slave could save up the price of his freedom, probably a long time, then buy himself out of slavery. There was language for that. Go to the temple of some god, pay the money, that is what he had saved up in the temple treasury. The owner went through a solemn rigmarole of selling him to that god for freedom. <coughs> Somebody would carve into the wall the proceedings. A couple of examples of this. Uh, uh, one lady, uh, quote, Morris says, but as far as men were concerned, she was free. The price had been paid. She was no longer a slave. The Jewish background. The early Christians were not Greeks, but Jews, though many times they used the Greek language for their writings. They knew of redemption, though, through their Old Testament. The Septuagint translates the redemption words from three word groups in Hebrew. The first group has to do with the family, furthering its life and fortunes. Pity that English has no equivalent for a verb like to kinsmen. We don't have anything like that. Um, an excellent example from this word group. The basic idea is that of promoting the interests, the welfare of the family. We think of the book of Ruth. The duty a kinsman had of looking after the family fortunes when a man died without children. Boaz and the childless widow. Another example, when a murder took place and the next of kin was required to put this right. Uh, there are other ways and examples. Um, becoming utterly destitute and selling oneself into slavery to settle a debt. Still, he had the right to be redeemed. Uh, there's an example of that in Jeremiah. So when the Old Testament was being translated into Greek, the redemption words were used only when it was a question of paying money to secure release. The price-paying idea was fundamental. Next, the Lord, the Redeemer. Sometimes God is said to redeem. Now, um, Morris is reformed, so he goes on a little digression here. It is unthinkable that God should make a payment to any creature. God made no payment to the Egyptians to secure his people's release. 
we note the importance of the many references to God's outstretched arm. Exodus 6. All these will be listed for you if you ask for the printed copy. All the biblical references. I didn't print them out, but the references are there. Or, you stretched out your right hand. Exodus 15. We contrast passages in which God is so great that the people of the earth are so little that the greatest of men are as nothing, Isaiah 40. Um, Such language is not used when the idea of redemption is in mind. It's rather the stretched out arm that's emphasized. The Psalms, Jeremiah, a proverb or two. The emphasis is on the power of God, a power he puts forth on behalf of his people. As great as he is, He could rescue them with effortless ease, but he saves them at great cost. The exertion of the mighty force is the parallel to costing much. The metaphor of price paying is pretty close. Redemption and grace. Second Hebrew uh, family carries none of the family obligation content. People may redeem or not. There's an element of grace here. The person might be left in captivity, but the other chooses to redeem him. Uh, The application animals of the domestic herd, the first are to be given over to the Lord, the first offspring of every womb, all all the firstborn males of your livestock, are to be sacrificed, minus some unsuitable ones like donkeys. Human sacrifice is out. But when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, many of the firstborn sons had never been redeemed. The solution? The Levites, in their place, belong to the Lord, do His service in the sanctuary and elsewhere, become themselves the ransom prices for these unredeemed firstborns. Again, passages in which God is said to redeem Israel. Again, the thought is of exertion of his mighty power which he puts forth. And it's plain from such passages that the basic idea of cost is present. Quote, God puts forth a mighty effort to save those whom he loves. His deliverance is at great cost. Again, When this word group is used, there's no thought of obligation, whatever. God is free. The reform moralist takes another. He's worried that maybe God isn't going to be free, so we take a little digression again. Um, There is no trace of obligation. Rather, God's deliverance is always a matter of grace. Sinners can never say, God must save me. We pastors and priests have to watch ourselves on that. We were sinners, so God did this, and we're too light. What do you mean, so? There's all kinds of things packed there. Certainly not his obligation, huh? but his grace. No necessity is laid upon God. He saves freely. Where this word group is used, grace and redemption go together. And the third word group differs from the others. Here the verb is most prominent. In this one, uh, most, in the others, here we find the noun, ransom, most prominent. The meaning? Money that anyone pays to be delivered. 
Example, Old Testament. A man who owns a dangerous bull and it gores someone and the victim dies. The animal must die. The owner is guilty, but not of premeditated murder. He was careless. He may pay a ransom and not be executed himself. The word is also used of what happens at the census. Each must pay the Lord a ransom for his life when counted. Then no plague will come upon him. Exodus 30. The ransom is paid in the place of a life that would be otherwise forfeit. Um, somehow, sometimes it's used in a prayer that a man be saved from death. You can do that on your own. But always the thought of price. God's people are delivered at cost. Conclusion. Redemption terminology in the Old Testament. Cons- uh, redemption theology or terminology in the Old Testament is concerned with release on payment of a price. The payment of a price, the ransom, is basic to all the redemption words. There's always the thought of deliverance at cost. Quote Morris. In the literature of antiquity, redemption always denotes deliverance from a state of captivity, the prisoner of war, or from slavery, or from a death sentence. And always it is deliverance in a particular way, by the payment of a price. The idea of the payment of a price is fundamental to redemption. He researches for a, an analogy in our modern world, and bless his heart, I don't think I could do better. He uses pawn shop. Um, slaves of sin. How does all this help when all we want to do is understand the New Testament? Well, we've got to go back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1, God creates all, mankind included. We belong to Him. We are His by right of His creating us. Even if we deny Him, we are His. In Genesis 2 in the garden, there's first fellowship, then sin, which causes a radical alteration of things, uh, John 8. Um, And it's all too terribly true. As Jesus said, sin makes us all slaves of sin. Uh, Think of a person with a temper that just can't seem to get it under control. Or think of the first time we commit a particular sin, the struggle against it is strong, even though we lose, and the next time there's a little less struggle. Uh, The trouble is that we're still in this situation. Sin is simply too strong for us. From time to time we might chalk up some small victory, beat some bad habit, but what cannot be done is to break all our bad habits. To sin is to become slave of sin. Now the person and work of Christ. What all this amounts to. God created man. Man belongs to God. Set him in Eden. Man sinned. Became a slave of evil. He cannot break free from this strong power. Morris quote. This is precisely the situation that the ancient world saw as calling for an act of redemption. We who belong to God have gotten into the power of a strong enemy from whom we cannot break free. As Morris says, if I can say it reverently, God, if he wants us back, must pay the price. And the great teaching of the New Testament is that God has paid the price he has redeemed us sinners. Christ has become our Redeemer. Um, 
Mark 10.45. Anybody happen to know that one from memory? Somebody want to read it for us? Or know it? I'll take that one wrong. There it is. There's your Sadie's Doctrinae. Seed of Doctrine, Mark 10.45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom, a lutron, cash, for many. We have been redeemed, freely, bought out of the realm of a strong power who has a claim on us and an airtight case. And in this case, the price is going to be, the cash is going to be blood. And we'll do more of that as we do some of the other word studies. But I thought we could start with that one, and that leaves us some time for Q&A. All the details of this you can get in the one that I'll print out if you want it. Now I know for many of you that's pretty basic stuff. Well, once in a while, it's worth it to take a look at the basics again. In Job 19, when he declares, I know that my Redeemer is living, is that just... Um, it's, messianic, it's, it's messianic prophecy. He does know. How he knows, I don't know. How did Isaiah know uh, what Isaiah, the fifth evangelist? I don't know. But... When he talked about the Lord being his Redeemer, there was some way the Lord was going to buy him out of the futility of death and total lack of hope. And he was seeing something from afar, and the Lord was going to do it somehow. Amazing. Amazing. Now, he had all the Old Testament Redeemer language, but he was saying this in a greater way. My Redeemer lives, and I shall see Him with these eyes, these very same eyes. It'll be new heavens, new earth, but there's going to be continuity, not just discontinuity. With these eyes, I will behold Him. Pardon? Yeah. 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 In 30 different ways, I'm going to try and say, in one day tomorrow, Christianity is about Christ, not you. Mm-hmm. God, do you see this as in any way or in every way in conflict with substitutionary? Conflict? No, no, it's in, co- it's in concert with it. The, the price is going to be the blood. Yeah, the price is going to be the blood. He's going to pay, and he's going to pay with his life. And he was under no obligation to do it. This is too good to be true, but it is true. And this is what Christianity is about. It is not about morals. It's about it's the greatest rescue story ever told, and this one's true. Ever read Tolkien explaining what he was doing in The Lord of the Rings? It's a scholarly essay called On Fairy Stories, and there's an epilogue to it. I had to read it. I think I've got it on my hard drive. He explains what he was doing. And he says, 
if somebody is reading the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, and they begin to yearn to live in the Shire, then they're ready to read the greatest fairy tale ever told. It's in the Gospels. They're ready to read John. Only this fairy tale took place in primary history. God is the Lord of men and of angels and of elves. Tolkien, explaining what he was doing. The epilogue to his essay on fairy stories. This one's true. What we yearn for in every fairy tale, and they lived happily ever after, actually happened, and we will, in that great marriage feast of the Lamb. All for free. Don't anybody bring up ethics. There are more important going, things going on here. Have somebody else in here to do ethics. I'm talking about more important things. The language is almost that, and we must not look down upon analogy. Analogy is not perfect, but we must not try to transcend it. It's what links things to the earth. That's why Lewis said, it doesn't surprise me that you find pieces, parts, of the original message in Genesis spread throughout the tribes of the world but screwed up. He said, what would surprise me would be if I found nothing that even resembled it. But when you find child sacrifice and other horrendous things, Lewis said, there's something going on here that has to do with what they know about the gulf between themselves and the invisible God, and they're going to get rid of his anger by sacrificing their children, or something like that. Uh, analogy is more okay than we imagine. Now, we Protestants are weak on that, and the reason is because our seminary professors didn't make us read St. Thomas and teach us the language of analogy. So what do we have in its place? Sermon illustrations. Yeah. Yeah. But analogy will work. It just, it just isn't... You know, univocal. Thomas would say this language isn't equivocal. It isn't univocal either. It's analogical. And people like Lewis are on their home turf doing that. And we should thank them for it. Paul um, not say in Romans 1 that example is clear evidence of the natural... Sure. Sure he would. Yeah. It, 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 the imperfect doesn't destroy the whole thing. There you've got to think analogy, not for, it's got to be a, that's like the Reformed, it's got to be a perfect fit or no fit. It's binary. No, it isn't. It's, we're talking 33 LP records here, not CDs. This is analog. 
uh, analogy is analog. It's rainbows, not circuit switches. It never claims to be more than that. But you give me an analogy that isn't a terrible one, and in many cases, it'll work. And in fact, the Bible even will bring some up. And unless you're captured to just the conceptual, and boy, do Lutherans hate just the conceptual, we are more anti-dualistic than any Christian denomination. Um, one time at the Marburg colloquy, Zwingli versus Luther on the Lord's Supper, and finally Zwingli got totally frustrated, and he said, Luther, what God do you believe in anyway? And Luther answered back, the only God in whom I believe is the one who suckled at Mary's breast. We like the concrete. <laughs> um... So analogy's fine. And if St. Thomas says analogy's fine, that's all the more help, I think. You were bought with a price. So was I. Somebody else paid it, and all we brought to the deal was our own self-caused slavery. And he bought us out. On that note, how do you respond to this one up she knocked it over? We've been bought with a price, and we've been redeemed from the power of sin and death. Why then do we continue to fear death and continue to sin? That may be still your time for the moment. No, no, it's okay. I mean, I think this, the answer is really, at least at base, pretty simple. It's the logic of Romans 1 to Romans 2 to Romans 3 to Romans 4 to Romans 5 to Romans 6. Romans 7. Westmont, evangelicals, I would say the best description of the Christian life in all of the Bible is the end of Romans 7. The good I would, I never do. That which I hate, I'm always doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And they just shrank back in horror that anybody would say such a thing. Because Paul had met the Lord this had to be before he met the Lord or he couldn't talk like that. There was no victory in that. That was, that was Paul before his experience with the Lord. Except that the linguistic case is on my side. He writes it in the present indicative. Not that I was, but that I am. Um, Luther used to say that one of the marks of being a believer was terrible, unfixed inside, you know, um, worryings and frettings of soul um, that maybe this thing wasn't true. That was his own autobiography, but he identified with Paul here and, and uh, thought, that's, that's what the Christian life is. It was the total opposite of Wesley. Total opposite. The normal Christian life is a life of a cycle of repentance and having the gospel preached to you and the body of Christ put into your mouth as this was given into death for your sin, Gil. Drink. This is 
true blood of Christ, given unto death for your sin, Gil, drink. That's the normal Christian life. And the Wesleyan will hear this and just say, there's no hope for you guys. You are constitutionally Northern European pessimists. (laughs) But I I think partly that's really straightforward and simple. This This is the muck of it. And in the muck of it all, He gives you a priest to tell you what you need to know again and me and to put that bread into our mouths and to put that wine into our gullet and has us eat and drink the forgiveness of sins and absolves us on the basis solely of Christ's work. You say, where's ethics? And I say, that's not my subject. (laughs) Yeah. I should be able to say more than I really can because you know what group you know what group is in the crosshairs of Wright, Saunders, and the gang. What what Christian denomination is most in the crosshairs? Absolutely. Luther got everything wrong. The whole thing he got wrong. We are the ones that they truly hate. I'll say a little bit about it, but uh, uh, I'm I'm not as knowledgeable as I ought be on that. Um, I I tend to operate more on the periphery with unbelievers or with broken evangelicals than I do with heretics within the church. I leave that... (laughs) Atheists... Atheists is much more fertile territory than unbelieving bishops. <laughs> All right, should we call it an evening then? Well, I'll say very little about it. You know, when I was going along the logic of Romans 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5, um, at the end of 5, 4 with Abraham is justification by faith, 5, the two, Ad, uh, two Adams, first and second, and he gets to the end of that, and it is Christ's death saves whoosh, you know, uh, throwing, throwing to take the parable of the sower. Sowing seed on the freeway, you know, everywhere, you know. And he knows what his critic is going to say. He had never been to Rome. He was writing a letter. This is unusual, because usually he's responding to letters from congregations that he had formed. In the case of Rome, he'd never been there. He was writing to people he'd never met. 
And bless him, he lays out Christianity logically from beginning to end. At the end of five, he knows what his sharp critic will say. His sharp critic will say just what he quotes in 6.1. Well, then shall we sin the more that the grace might more abound? He knows that's what his critic will say, and he should say it. Because this whole thing is so free. May genestai, may it never be, God forbid, and then he talks about baptized into his death, buried with him by baptism into his death, and raised again in newness of life. The ironic part of this, 6 and then 7 to get to 8, the ironic part about this is that all you want is improvement. You're just this incurable moralist. I don't want to know any theology. I just want to know what works. Even with just that, you're still better off betting on God one-sidedly saving in Christ on the cross even if all you say is, I just want results. Ironically, the results come when you're not looking at the sort of Damocles over your head all the time because it's been removed by somebody else. And lo and behold, after years of trying to follow the recipes and the rules and failing and all that, you actually get, says Paul, a sort of look at what it would be like to be free and to live free and to have some okayness that you've never known and things when you aren't watching are going to happen that actually will improve you. Don't check on them every day, but they will. And you won't see it, says Luther, but your neighbor will. All right, let's call it an evening. Shall we?